Welcome to Great Move North. If you're just looking, just wondering, or even just about to do it, then this just might be the place to start. We meet the people who've taken a leap of faith and jumped. As they land, there's challenges, sometimes despair, but that's followed by smiles and silent amazement at the sights that now surround them. When a triathlete is bored and has done it all, there's nothing left to prove until you discover an unbroken record spanning two great world cities. Breaking it became Andy Mouncey's obsession. It didn't work. What did was the moment he entered a bleak Cumbrian prison. Andy told me how he found freedom and a vocation behind bars. It's good to see you, Andy. Thank you, Tony. Tell me what big and scary is, or doing big and scary. That is a catchy title of my design, um, which says everything and nothing. So in other words, you know exactly what it is without knowing exactly what it is. So from an attention-grabbing point of view, it kind of does the job. And when you work for yourself and you're a little fish in a big old pond, you want stuff that stands out and gets people attention. So what I, uh, what I found very quickly was it, it did exactly that. So it was a conversation opener. So doing big is scary. What, what's that about then? Are you into like adrenaline sports then? Is it, is it, a, is it an outdoor, you know, is it an outdoor adrenaline sports company that you got? And you go, no, it's exactly. Um, but to, to answer your question, one of the consistent themes in the work that I do is around helping people transition through what appears to be big scary stuff. Um, in, in the corporate world, in the early noughties, I used to go into meetings where people would talk about big, hairy, audacious yeah, goals. Yeah, yeah, that old chestnut. Bee hags. Yeah. yeah. Is, it, is it the sort of, is it that kind of stuff, but with more physical, less PowerPoint? Well, there's a hint of that, clearly. The old stretch goals kind of malarkey, except that I've just evolved a particular way of presenting and facilitating and introducing that, which is primarily, it's much more actually emotional to do the emotions of it than it is with anything logical rational reasonable because again you know a differentiation thing um though a lot of why i come at it in the direction that i do uh, has come from my sport background both from my own stuff which is endurance sport but also the work with elite sport which is where i started off at and a lot of that is around performance how do you perform when it matters? How do you get someone to perform when it matters? Well, there are lots of logical and rational reasons why you could and should, but actually what it comes down to is an emotional thing. Um, performance is emotional. We'll come back to the emotional stuff, but just answer me this question. What in those teams that you've worked with, in the corporate or even in the endurance world, um, what's the deciding factor between those that perform well uh, and those that don't define that on an emotional level. What's the deciding factor? It depends. Um, and an answer to that question could be how you manage your mood. You know, what's the difference between an average day and a, a great day? Well, it's not that we lose our skills over 24 hours. That still remains the same. The work setting remains the same. But it's how we feel when we step through the door, or more specifically, how we choose to feel. The skill set is in managing that. It's not magic dust. You know, mood management is very definitely something that can be 
acquired, taught, practiced, and, and perfected. And that's a consistent theme in every aspect of my work, whether I'm working with people in education or business or sport or everyday life or criminal justice. So tell me this then, Andy, what sort of mood were you in? Because one of the reasons we're sitting here in North Yorkshire now is I happen to know you did a slightly bizarre triathlon from London to Paris. What sort of a mood were you in when you decided you were going to do that? And tell me what it was. Oh, I was bored and f***ed off. Because part of recognising what's important to you is you notice when it's missing. So I'm a bit of a challenge monster, but pride is also really important for me to experience, as well as a sense of fun and freedom. And I'd been in triathlon for 17 years before I did that silly thing that you've just referred to. And I was cruised and bored and, and you know, I'd kind of been there, done that, got the T-shirt. And it wasn't floating my boat anymore. So I was, you know, I was missing the stuff that I went into the sport in the first place. I'd, I'd all gone, so I was looking for that recharge. And the detail is you went from Marble Arch to the Art de Triomphe. Yes, it's a solo, as continuous as possible time trial. Any stops or breaks or delays by the weather are all part of the deal. The clock starts in London, it finishes in Paris. So you're perfectly correct. Um, you start off with a run from the middle of London down to the beach in Dover, which is about four marathons, just under. Then there's a small matter of um, a swim across the English Channel, which, depending on uh, how the currents are behaving, is anything from around 21, 22 miles plus, because it's rarely a straight line between the two closest points that, that the swimmer gets to, to navigate. And then there's a small matter of a little bicycle ride from the French side into Paris, which is about eight marathons, one after the other. So it's a little shy of 300 miles. Um, it had been done in relay form for many years since the mid-80s. So the forces used to do it quite a lot. Triathlon clubs used to do it. But it was never done solo until the early 2000s. And I met the guy that uh, pioneered the first solo crossing, English guy, called Eddie Etty. And then, of course, the seed was sown and I was hooked. And then committed to my own attempt at a crossing, so with the first successful solo repeat. And I'd asked Ed to help me, so effectively coach and mentor me, particularly in the swimming side of it. And that was a real coup and, and hats off to him. So you get the world record holder for the challenge agreeing to help some idiot try and break his record. You know, that's, that says a long... And did you? Um, I didn't uh, because any delays, um, either my choice or the weather is all part of the deal. So here's the thing about the, the nature of the challenge. The clock starts in London, it finishes in Paris. Um, you can be in the shape of your life, uh, and I was... But if the weather's against you, particularly in the swim, you're utterly stuffed. So, and what happens is um, we're watching for a, for a weather window to make the swim within the window that, that we'd booked the pilot boat. So every swimmer across the English Channel uh, has to be escorted by a licensed pilot um, whose responsibility is to get the swimmer across in the straightest possible line between the two shortest points, depending on the currents and the quality of the swimmer, and without being driven over by a ship. So it's a very important job, because the channel is the busiest shipping lane in the world. And I'm waiting for a phone call from Chris, who was our pilot, who was based down on the, on the south coast, to go, right, 
the weather's good then, so you need to set off from London by this. Now that's fine in theory, as long as the weather remains as forecasted while you're doing your little jog to the beach. But what happened was the weather changed while I was on the run section, which meant I got to Dover and had to, uh, it wasn't possible to swim when we wanted to swim. Um, and the plan was get to Dover, eight hours and you're in the water. Nah, we got a storm, blew up on the straight. So I was sitting for two and a half days in Dover going, okay, ready? Really? So it's like, you know, it's your biggest exam of your life and you, you've rocked up to, to the exam room with all your stuff and you're ready for your exam and you're nervous as hell. And they close the doors and go, sorry, we're not doing the exam. Can you just wait outside in this chair and we'll give you, we're not sure exactly when we're going to do it, but we'll give you a shout. You just, you just sit there. So it's about 59 hours before I could swim. That would make the record difficult. And I think you've answered so, the question, the question about which was the hardest of the three parts. Yeah. <laughs> Waiting in Dover. And that's uh, back to mood, isn't it? Yeah, that's back to mental purely, strength. Yeah, purely mood management and focus, you know, all the cliches and focusing on what you can control, but doing the practical, technical stuff around self-management and you know getting yourself ready in shape. So it's very much a let's make the most of the recharge. You know, so be smart, do what you need to do in terms of looking after yourself physically. Manage your mood, and that's primarily around you know, putting my faith and trust in the people around me and focus very definitely on the stuff that I could control and knowing that I'd swim when I'm able to swim. So the big scary goal to break the world record had gone, but there were still lots of other very attractive fruits to pick from because um, the way that I'd set it up was, you know, it was a huge challenge and I had lots of different levels of goal and aspiration around it. So even if one thing was blown out of the water, there was lots of other elements that were equally as engaging. So lots of goals relating to very quantifiable stuff right down to the process and the experience of it as well. So it's very much a cake and eat it mentality. So it meant that once the world record hook had gone, I'd still got an opportunity to do a first successful repeat and an opportunity to set fastest stage times. Mm. So the individual chunks, but the cumulative, gone. So your your career, or part of your career, was in uh, in the south. You're obviously now in North Yorkshire, but uh, in the physical um, and team building world in which you were operating at that point, none of the current activities that focus your attention um, were there. How did that come about? How did the shift come to the north and what you've now picked up on as one of your key drivers? It was a north to south to north shift. So I was brought up West Yorkshire. I moved away to study in the Midlands, what was Polytechnic, you remember those? <laughs> uh, which included a, a sandwich year, so a year in industry, which was life-changing. And that was Bedford. And part of that was a project in London. So I was doing the Bedford-London commute for a while. So I did my placement here in a, a distribution logistics firm. And then, as you did, you kind of moved around and, and moved where the work was, chased the work. But the move back north came when we were expecting first child, which prompted a where do you want to bring a family up discussion. We've both always been hills and open spaces people, so it was always going to be the north. Also hooked with 
being brave enough and clear-headed enough to realise that the work I was doing, my clients didn't care where I lived. Mm. And actually, it wasn't a barrier on, on the work, which freed us up to, actually, we could go and live where we wanted then. So you were remote years before everybody was doing this? Yeah, pretty much. Um, my travel was relatively infrequent for chunks of time and work, so it's very much on a project basis. And I was cool with that because I could always come back to my choice of location. And what, so a lot of elite coaching of sports teams and also corporate teams. What's the difference? I'll give you one example of a difference. And again, I'm generalising. So of course there are exceptions. And the, in my experience, the generalisation holds. In elite sport, one of the patterns is that you've got the, the athlete and you, then you've got a ton of people around them, which are effectively the support services. So one of the early versions of what's the world-class program now, and I was involved in the early stuff, so the early days of the English Institute of Sport, which then looked after the world-class programs. So these are uh, programs where athletes are of a particularly high standard and they're supported and paid the salary, but part of that support is effectively a very simple model. We're going to strip out everything you don't need to do so you can concentrate on being really good at that thing we want you to win stuff at. But the flip side of that is that they get really good at what they're supported to, to perform and win on, but they get really crap at life because all that stuff, other people do it for them. It's all stripped out. How does that express itself then? Is that arrogance or are they just completely unaware of, um, of what life entails. Well, there's a whole range. And again, we've seen it during COVID because, and I'm, I'm not involved in, in that world now, so I don't see it directly, but I'm still connected to it. I still have people who, who I know that, that are working at the front line and I still pay attention to you know examples. And there are enough examples of athletes that have been left rudderless. You know, so COVID hits, all the sporting framework just, you know, it's just gone. So they've relied on on a team and a cohort and a structure around them. But we've had, and you know, it's it's hit mainstream news around a yeah, number of athletes thinking, oh, COVID rules don't apply to me. Sure. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, and they've, they've done this, they've, they've gone that, or they're completely, you know, completely rudderless and because the support system's not there. So you've got, on the one hand, you know, the pattern in elite sport is you've got the athlete and there's a ton of support services of people around them to support them and, and you know, everybody's working towards the same end. One of the differences in the corporate world is you have the leader, usually a bloke, not necessarily, and, and less so now, but usually a bloke. And one of the features and characteristics, particularly as a bloke, is really crap at asking for help because I'm a leader and I'm a bloke and I've got to have all the answers. And I know this because... I spend an awful lot of my time when I'm working in the corporate world and people that, that are in senior positions in the corporate world puncturing that and helping them untangle the mess that they're in <laughs> from persisting with, I've got to have all the answers all the time and I can't show any weakness and I've got to be you know, beyond reproach, etc., etc. What do you do to tackle the pride, the ego? Well, sometimes it's by stealth and sometimes it's with a sledgehammer. <laughs> again it depends so part of it is opening eyes and minds to the ripple effect of 
that kind of mentality. Do they actually care? Do the most successful ones care? Again, it depends. In my experience, you know, the vast majority do because they're not made of stone. You know, there are feelings and they do, you know, they do give a damn. And for a lot of them, you know, the culture is heel to the steel 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'll stop when I die, I'll enjoy it when I retire. And that's fine, except that actually that might be too late because you might be in a basket or a box. So one of the defining differences is in elite sport, you've got all the support services there around and available. In the corporate world, it can be really lonely at the top. The defining characteristic of the successful firm that moves on to another level of becoming more successful then is that ability, is it, to understand their moods, to have a degree of what people talk about as emotional intelligence? Yes, because in my experience and in my work, particularly if you're talking about, you know, what, what's the success of the business, you know, around the leadership, again, it comes back to performance is emotional and the old P equals E equation. People will follow you because of how you make them feel. If people choose to leave or, or turn away, in my experience and in my work, it, it, it's rarely for reasons of salary or, you know, or terms and conditions. It's very much a visceral emotional reaction. So, you know, effectively, if you can boil leadership down to how do you get your people to do what you need them to do for their reasons? How do you get your people to do what you want them to do, but they do it for their reasons? And then they'll follow you. Yeah, and that's about making it personal, making it meaningful, making it matter, very much tuning into the emotional side of it. And by doing that, earning enough brownie points that when you stand up and go, we're going over there, we're going now, and we're going because I say so, and you're all coming with me, you're able to make that fly. And in my experience, the successful businesses are those that are able to do that. They bring enough or they bring their people with them when they go, we're going over there, we're going now, we're going because I say so, and you're all coming with me. Everybody goes, cool, let's go. And back to you. You came here to the north. You talked about fields, open space, the hills, the surroundings we're looking at now. But when you got here, you went somewhere else. You took yourself into a prison in Cumbria and underwent some sort of epiphany. Uh, It was, actually, because I have no links to, to the prison service. I have got no family in prison. I've never been to prison. I've had a speeding ticket and a library fine. That's probably about as, as cutting edge as it gets for me. There's no linkage there whatsoever um, in terms of my background or upbringing. And yet, here I am. I had gotten more involved in my educational work with starting to work with people that were struggling. And it started with students who were academically underachieving which led me into working with neat teenagers, so not in employment, education or training. So they kind of fallen through the gaps, which led to an invitation by the educational provider at the time for one of the prisons in Cumbria to develop some new work looking at how can we use physical activity more deliberately, smarter, to affect engagement among men, and it it was men, who are in prison and struggling with the requirements of rehabilitation. 
Mood management. Yeah. And education... With bars. Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. So education are streets ahead of the criminal justice system in terms of physically, what's called physically active learning. And we all know this. You know, if you want to think clearly and be receptive and open, typically that's best done after a period of physical activity. And for some people, that's just going out for a walk by the river with a dog. And for other people, that's going and killing themselves in a CrossFit session or, you know, running up and down a mountain. But generally, post-physical activity, we're at our physiological best. And there's good physiological reasons for that and neurological reasons. And at the heart of it is that as a carbon-based life forms, we are designed to move. All our body systems function better with movement. So if we want to be at our optimum, physiologically, neurologically, there has to be movement and activity involved, preferably outside. And quite often, if you want to ramp it up even more, you know, particularly in a social competitive setting. So in education, one manifestation of that is that at a primary school, the day will always start with break or outside. So the kids go mad outside before teachers even think about opening the doors and starting anything. So when they get in through the door, they're ready and receptive. The fastest learning and the deepest learning comes after that. And education streets ahead of, of that, there's, there's a ton of work, a ton of research around what's called physically active learning. And particularly if you're trying to reach um, children who are academically underachieving, it's a banker. But the penal system's way off the pace. No. You've, you've got, in my experience, you know, you've got examples of it, but it happens by chance rather than design. Now, I know physical activity is great for mood management. The criminal justice system knows that because the crown jewels and you know, the safety valve in a prison is the PE department. You know, if you want to get a prison to explode, you ban PE. You close, you close all physical activity, all the PE functions, you close it all down. So they know it, yeah, it's, it's known, but it's not used tactically. So you went in then and you developed programs yeah, and so worked I, on Yeah, I designed, so I designed a way of working with men and staff that's effectively physical activity writ large, but in a rehabilitation forum. And primarily it's using physical activity and it's very deliberately endurance activity because there are some very specific differences around endurance activity. It's small repetitive movements for long periods of time that requires no specialist kit. And for you to persevere through that, you've got to be able to manage yourself over long extended periods of time. Now, what's prison got a lot of? Time. Correct. So generally fairly underserved in terms of resourcing. So you go, right, got a lot of time, very little, no specialist kit endurance activity so small repetitive movements over long periods of time you know usually in challenging circumstances so for example because you know my own work and my own experience to be successful at endurance sports requires you know a handful of very specific skills you've got to be able to persevere through setbacks time and time again you've got to come up with a way of making it feel like you're part of something and you're connected and there are people and things that you can and rituals and strategies that you can call on to support yourself. So you establish that connection then with groups of inmates and the leadership teams, bespoke programmes, 
And that's rolled out in some of the prisons now? Yeah. So from that first contact um, from first prison in Cumbria, we went through all the prep work and then nothing happened because the programme was pulled. There was a change of governor and, and they all went, ah, no, sorry, we're going in a different direction. We don't need all of that. Um, which is quite normal in the prison system, I've come to, I've come to understand. But it, it got me hooked. I understood very clearly that nobody was looking at it like this. You know, physical activity in a, a prison system usually involved 45-minute sessions of throwing weights around in a gym or team-related games, but no one was looking at the way you know, that I was looking at, certainly endurance sport and, and no specialist kid or whatever. And can, I, can I just ask them, why did it get you hooked? Was it because you could see results? You could see that there was a change in terms of what we've talked about a lot here, mood management and the way in which these men were able to control their emotions? Oh no, it was um, it was purely selfish. I learned really quickly that it was the perfect combination of it played to my professional strengths and it sat really well with my personal drivers. And I've heard criminal justice work described as, you know, it's very much a Marmite thing. You either love it or hate it. And I love it. I love it because it's the perfect mix for me. Professionally, it's the skill set that I have and are continuing to develop, plays to my strengths. And personally, at an emotional level, it sits really well. It sits bang on. So I have learned to describe it that it's probably taken me 35 years to figure out actually what, what I want to do from a work point of view. And now you're taking this it, is it. Now you're taking it to the leadership teams, to governors, is that correct? Yes. In the north? Yes. Um, and I'd always done... You know, there was, there was little bits of that, but COVID, you know, again, I am one of the very fortunate ones that from a work point of view, COVID has been a real revelation for me. So all my in-prison work stopped uh, in March 2020 when COVID hit and prisons went into lockdown because there was a very deliberate strategy to control the risk of infection in a prison by effectively confining men to cell for most of 24-hour cycles and limiting any contact. So all work stopped, including all visits, and prisons went into bare minimum to keep people alive. But it meant providers like me were gone, thanks very much, see you when COVID's over. That's still very much the case. So men and women have been confined to cell for 22, 23 hours a day since March 2020. It's been highly successful at limiting and controlling infection. But the cost of that is only now becoming apparent in terms of the mental, physical and emotional health of the people serving sentences and the staff who support them in in many cases. Um, That's a different podcast. However, one of the things that became apparent to me very quickly was that a prison governor job that's already high stakes, suddenly got harder. Because now, stop people dying, please, you know, was the brief. But we're not doing any, you know, you can't network, and there's no CPD, that's all stopped, because that, that requires contact. So governors were very much kind of confined, as the men in their care were, but the stakes had increased. You know, so you take a, you take a leadership role that's already really challenging, and you've just turned it up to number 11. 
But who's supporting the people at the top of decision-making tree? Because that's the critical point, yeah. isn't it? There's a lot of focus on yeah. the mental yeah. challenges facing <clears throat> the inmates, but what you're talking about is the leadership teams Correct. facing all these pressures. Correct. And that, those are the people you're helping now. Yeah. So I thought there was a gap there because I couldn't see anybody else supporting those leaders. So I dusted off my corporate stuff, developed a way of supporting small groups of prison governors on Zoom and used... The, the relationships, so I knew some governors at the time, um, I used them as guinea pigs. So continuing to refine and develop a way of supporting specifically prison governors whose terms of reference had just been ramped right up. And that's your overarching mission now, Andy, I understand? Well, yes and no. Um, what I found was the ability to work at, at both ends, so with people serving sentences, and that's what I was doing prior to lockdown, I was contributing to to the rehabilitation of that. So my work is very specifically trying to break cycles of disengagement, violence, addiction, uh, dysfunction. But I'm using physical activity as a, as a central theme in my work in order to get people to collaborate towards shared aims rather than be in conflict. And I'm doing that at the chalk face, so with people serving sentences and the staff that support them. But working with the governors has given me kind of bookends. You know, I'm working at the, at the top end. You know, I'm working with the senior decision makers and I'm, I'm working with people directly affected, which is a really privileged position to be in. There are differences in the skill sets required, but there are also a ton of similarities as well. And because I'm at both ends, as it were, I get a unique perspective as to the operation, which means I can feed one into the other. My understanding is it's, it's pretty much unique in the sector. I, I don't know of anybody else that's doing that spread. And it's a real challenge to do it, but one feeds into the other, and I really like that. Well, challenge has been the theme throughout, <laughs> Andy. Whether it's Marble Arch to the Art de Triomphe, 35 years to find your true vocation in a prison in Cumbria, you definitely fit the description of unique. Andy Mouncy, many thanks. <laughs>